Well, when Paul wrote the letter to this church in Rome, he had not actually gone to the church in Rome yet. He wanted to. He was looking for opportunities, but he had not been able to visit that church yet. However, he knew them very, very well, and he cared about them deeply. And so he took a lot of time to explain to them the nature of salvation in Christ, that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But Paul is urgent in his desire to apply the truth and realities and implications of the gospel to the struggles within the church in Rome. And boy, did they have their struggles. <laughs> Let me tell you, if you think a church has struggles, this church could probably top you, except if you're the church in Corinth, and that's a sermon for another day. So, <laughs> But this church was in a really unique situation, because here's what happened. The church in Rome was started by Jewish Christians, those who used to be Jewish but had been converted to faith in Christ. And as the gospel went forward, God began to save Gentiles. And so what did the Gentiles do? They joined the church in Rome. And so you had this church that was filled with Jews and Gentiles and everything was great. But then there was a problem. In the year A.D. 49, the emperor Claudius did something kind of unheard of. He expelled all Jews from Rome. And they had to stay gone for five years. And at the time, if you were a Jewish Christian, you still fell under the umbrella of Judaism. And so all the Jewish Christians within the church in Rome had to leave the church for five years. Meaning, the Greek-speaking, Hellenistic, Roman Christians were left in charge of the church for five years. Now just imagine how different that church was going to look after those five years. I mean, let's just say, for instance, just to kind of get our mind around this, let's say that for whatever reason, everyone 41 and older had to leave this church for five years. And everybody 40 and younger, they were left in charge of this church for five years. All the leadership positions, all the gatherings, the, the style of music, how we dress, everything 40 and younger. Now that church is going to look real different than a church where if everybody 41 and older got to stay and run things for five years, right? Can we agree on that? That's kind of what they were dealing with, but to a much greater degree. Because they weren't dealing with primarily a difference in age. They were dealing with differences in ethnicity and background and culture. You have to keep in mind, uh, Hellenistic, Greek-speaking Romans were about as different from the Jews and Jewish Christians as you could possibly get, right? <laughs> and for five years, they filled all the leadership positions within this church. They planned all the gatherings of the church. They organized all the activities of the church. They were in charge of all the music. And I don't know if you've ever heard Jewish-style music versus Italian-style music. Pretty different, okay? And they even had their own preaching style, which differed greatly from the Jews. And they were left in this situation for five years. And then, by God's grace, after five years, guess what happened? The Jewish Christians, they got to come back. Happy reunion? Kind of, right? The, the Romans were really happy that the Jews were getting to come back, but there was also a lot of awkward tension because now they had to reincorporate the Jews back into the church. And so what should have been a happy reunion was fraught with tension and hostility and division. Primarily because the Jews came back fully expecting to take back over the church. They said, okay, you've done a good job as a placeholder, but now we're back. 
The good guys are back. The best people are back. We are God's chosen nation. They were boasting that they had a right to run this church. And so they came back fully expecting to take it back over. Well, the Gentiles thought to themselves, hold on a second. We've been doing a pretty good job for these past five years. We've seen growth. We've seen God's blessing. We've seen success. And so I don't think that you actually should take back over the church. They said, maybe we should continue running the church and you should just take a back seat and be thankful that you're back in Rome and not outside the city again. That's what they were dealing with. You have these two groups within the church, the Jews and the Gentiles. And because they are having to change and they're having to make changes as a church, there's a lot of hostility and infighting and a division as a result of those changes. Both of these groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, are prioritizing their own preferences over everybody else's. They are trying so hard to elevate themselves over everybody else that they are tearing apart the church from the inside out. And Paul is acutely aware of this situation in Rome. And it is the overwhelming desire of his heart to see this church be who they are called to be in Christ Jesus. He wants them to be united as one family in Christ Jesus. He knows that in order to do that, he must expel pride from their midst. He needs to show them that the gospel puts all people on equal footing and the gospel brings us together as a body of believers. You see, they say that death is the great equalizer, right? Death, it's no respecter of persons. It has no regard for status or education or wealth. Death comes to all without exception. And what Paul wants this church to see this morning is actually the gospel is the great equalizer. Because what every church needs is humility and unity. And those two things are only possible through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what every church needs at all times. You've heard me say often enough, there is no greater danger to the church than division. Jesus himself, before Abraham Lincoln said it, said a house divided against itself cannot stand. There's no greater danger to the church than division. We think it's bad theology or wolves in sheep's clothing. I told a pastor this past week, most churches will die due to infighting and division long before they even have the chance to die due to bad theology. And nothing will divide a church quicker than pride. That's because pride insists upon its own way. Pride is relentless in its pursuit of having its own way. Pride demands attention. Pride demands to be listened to. Pride demands to be followed. Pride knows nothing of laying itself down and setting itself aside for the greater good. And so if every person in a church is filled with pride and selfish ambition, that church is going to destroy itself from the inside out. And unity will be absolutely impossible. And sadly, it's often those who claim to love the church most who are often the ones responsible for its demise. And Paul wants us to know this morning, there's hope for a church like that. There's, there's hope for a church that is changing and divided, a church in which there's hostility and some, some sort of division. There's hope for a church that needs humility and unity, and it comes through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because the gospel is the great equalizer. So listen, the question we need to consider together this morning is this. What is 
the equalizing effect of the gospel upon the church. That is what we have to consider this morning. What is the equalizing effect of the gospel upon the church? And the first thing that Paul wants us to understand is that the gospel knocks us down and brings us to our knees. If you look in verses 27 and 28, this is what he says. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You see, pride is what ultimately leads to boasting. And the boasting that was going on within the church in Rome, it was not the kind of boasting that we deal with today, right? We, we, we see people boast today about their strength or their looks or their financial status. That's not what they were boasting about at all. Their boasting was spiritual and moral. Because both these groups within the church, the Jews and the Gentiles, you have to understand, they were vying for preeminence in the church and vying for control over the church. And the Jews were boasting that they deserved it. They should be the ones to have preeminence in the church. They should be the ones running the church because after all, look at their heritage. They were God's chosen nation. They had it all. And so in their minds, they were better than everybody else. They had all these works that they could look to. Listen, we've got obedience to the law, kind of. We've got circumcision. We've got the covenants. We've got all these things. And so they were boasting about their works. And on the basis of their works, they felt as though they should have preeminence in the church and be running the church. But then there were the Gentiles. And the Gentiles, they were boasting of their natural law keeping. You remember we talked about that in Romans 2. Because Paul said in Romans chapter 2 that the Gentiles, even though they didn't have the law, they had been at least partially obedient to the law. Well, if, if Paul says that about you, what are you going to think about yourself? Well, ho, ho. The Jews couldn't keep the law, and they had it. We didn't even have the law, and we were partially obedient to it. We must be better people than the Jews. They thought they were moral and upright people. They were boasting about it. And so on the basis of being moral, upright people, they concluded, if anyone should be running this church, it's us. We should have preeminence in the church. We should be making the decisions for the church. We should be in control of the church. And so imagine their shock then when Paul says in verse 37... Where then is boasting? You're, like, you're enjoying boasting so much, you won't control, you won't control. You're boasting, boasting about why you deserve that control. And he says, where then is boasting? It's excluded. And we, we lose a lot of the imagery here in English that we would have in the Greek, which is why you should study the original languages. And so, in the Greek, this word excluded, it has this really cool idea of actually slamming a door shut and then barring the door to prevent anyone or anything from coming in. And so this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, on the basis and in light of the reality of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, boasting has been cast out of the church into the kingdom of God, and it has no place in the church anymore. We are preventing it from coming back in. Boasting has been excluded. In other words, you shouldn't be boasting about why you deserve this and why you deserve that. You should just be thankful that you're part of the kingdom at all. Because none of us deserve to be, do we? Paul is saying boasting has been excluded and so if you're one of the jews or one of the gentiles at this moment you're probably wondering well but why though right 
The Jews would have been saying, hey, listen, we've got all, this, all these credentials. And the Gentiles said, we've got all these credentials. Why shouldn't we boast? And Paul says it's very simple. Because we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works. In other words, don't miss what he's saying here. The reason you shouldn't be boasting is because, hey, listen, Jews, you're not saved because of your works. You didn't work your way into the kingdom of God. And Gentiles, understand this. You did not get into the kingdom because you were moral, upright people. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works. In other words, it wasn't you. (laughs) You didn't get yourself into the kingdom. It wasn't because of something you did. It was because of Jesus. We are justified by faith apart from from works. And you remember in Romans 3:24 what Paul said. He said that we are justified by his grace as a what? As a gift. Well, then here's a good question, church. What do you do to deserve a gift? Nothing. What do you do to earn a gift? Nothing. Same answer. <laughs> Nothing. Gifts are given according to the desire and the discretion of the giver. And so how ridiculous is it, how foolish is it to be boasting about something that you have received as if you did anything to earn it or deserve it? That is foolish. That's exactly what Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4-7. He said, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So in other words, the Bible is saying if God has given you something as a gift and you did nothing to earn it or deserve it or work for it, then you don't need to boast as if you did, as if it was on you and you were the reason that you received those gifts. So here's a good question. What does the Bible say we receive as gifts? I'm glad you asked. I included that. Here are a few things the Bible says we receive as gifts. Romans 3.24, justification is a gift of God in Christ. Justification, you'll remember, that's our right standing with God. Romans uh, chapter 4 and 5 say that our righteousness is a gift of God in Christ. Righteousness is our status before God. Romans 6.23 says that eternal life is the free gift of God in Christ Jesus. So our eternal destiny, that's a gift in Christ. I love this verse, Ephesians 2 uh, verse 8. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. What is the gift? Well, it's interesting. In the Greek there, the word it is written in such a way that it modifies all the nouns that came before it. What does that mean? It means the grace is a gift of God, the faith is a gift of God, the salvation is a gift of God. So here's what this means for us as a church. It means that I can't boast about my right standing with God because that is a gift of God in Christ. I did nothing to earn it or deserve it or work for it. I can't boast about my righteousness and my status before God because that comes to me as a gift of God in Christ Jesus. I did nothing to earn that. I can't boast about receiving grace as if I deserved it. If I did, it wouldn't be grace. But it comes as a gift of God in Christ Jesus. 
I can't even boast about having faith or the strength of my faith as if the strength of my faith is what saves me. Uh, Side note there, church, Jesus is what saves you, not your faith or even the strength of your faith. It is Jesus Christ alone. So I can't even boast about the strength of my faith because that's a gift of God in Jesus Christ. And I can't boast about my salvation as if I did anything to earn it or deserve it or merit it or work towards it or contribute to it in any way because the Bible says salvation is a gift of God in Jesus Christ. And so it's as one of my favorite theologians of all time, Jonathan Edwards, said, You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. We need to write that one down. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Amen to that. Praise God. This is how the gospel eliminates boasting. I can't boast about my works like the Jews did because my works don't save me. I can't boast about my goodness because my goodness doesn't save me. The reason that we are saved is because of Jesus. Jesus did it all. The reason we are saved and part of the church today is all because of Jesus. Period. There's nothing else to add. And so here's what this means for us. And this is the good news for us today. It means that God doesn't save people based on their resumes. And that's good news. God doesn't save people based on their resumes. Because, you know, if you're filling out a resume and you're going to submit one, you you submit it to a job, you're hoping that your resume stands out, right? Stands out above the rest. Because the person doing the hiring, he's looking for the best qualified person. He's looking for the person who has the best resume, the most qualifications, who deserves the job the most. And praise the Lord, that is not how God works. That's not how salvation works. Even though, very sadly, that's how many people think it works. We have many people in our world today, and this is an absolute tragedy, church. Here's what they think they have to do. They think that they have to put together a resume to convince God why God should save them. And so they say, okay, listen, uh, I try to be nice to people. I try to do good things. I try to volunteer as much as I can. I try not to do bad things. I try to make sure that I'm at least present at the church once a month so people know that I'm a churchgoer and do things like that. I made sure I was baptized at one point. I try to give money. I try not to be selfish. And they put together this whole big long resume for all the reasons that God should save them. And I need you to understand this morning, you need to be reminded of this. None of those things can do anything to save you at all. None of those things can contribute to your salvation at all. God is not looking at resumes trying to determine who is and is not worthy of salvation. If he did that, guess what? None of us are worthy. None of us are going to be saved. And so praise God that he does not save people based on their resumes. You want more good news? Here's what it means for you. It means that a person's resume can never be so bad so as to make God turn away from him, but it can also never be so good so as to make God save him. Now that's some good news, isn't it? I I identify most of the first part of that. Your resume can never be so bad so as to make God turn away from you, but it can also never be so good so as to make God save you. It's because salvation is of the Lord. 
It has nothing to do with us. And this is how the Gospel equalizes us. It knocks our prideful legs out from under us and it brings us to our knees before Jesus in humility. It humbles us under the weight of the beautiful truth that salvation, that since salvation is wholly dependent upon the Lord, our boasting can only be in the Lord. If that's true, church, if salvation is wholly dependent upon the Lord, it means our boasting can only be in the Lord. How can I boast about my works, church? They were never good enough. The Bible says I always fell short of the glory of God. I need Jesus' perfect works. How can I boast in my law-keeping? I was not able to keep it perfectly. I need Jesus' perfect obedience. How can I boast in my goodness and in my good deeds when the Bible says no one is good, not even one, and all of our good, righteous deeds are like filthy rags before Him? I need Jesus' perfect life and goodness and good works to be attributed to me. As Galatians 6.14 says, God forbid that I should glory in anything save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. God forbid that I should glory in my works. God forbid that I should glory in my good deeds. God forbid that I should glory in my religious activities. God forbid that I should glory in anything save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.31, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen? All glory is to God. You see, church, this is what's going to happen. If we stray away from Jesus and the Gospel, pride is going to invade our hearts and lives again. And if pride invades our hearts and our lives, it's going to invade our church. And if pride invades our church, it will divide our church and it will crumble our church. It's because pride is competitive by nature. It looks for distinctions so that it can rank those distinctions. And so Paul's going to tell us not only does the Gospel knock us down, the Gospel also draws us in. I want you to look at verses 29-30. through 30. Paul says, Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. You see, this is what pride does, right? It's like I just said. Pride causes us to first look at ourselves and then look at others and come up with the differences. What are all those differences? What are these distinctions? And we love to focus on these distinctions because we love to rank these distinctions. And this is exactly what was happening in the church in Rome. They had basically created a class system for the kingdom of God. And here were the Jews, and the Jews said, well, if there is a class system, we're top of the class. <laughs> Nobody is as good as us. We're up here, everybody else is down here, and they should just be thankful to be included, but make no mistake, we're up here. We have the heritage, we have the covenants, we have the promises, we have the word, we have circumcision. God must love us more, and we must be better than everybody else. And the Gentiles said, well, hold on now. Um, Y'all failed as God's chosen nation. You were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, and you failed in that role. And now the gospel has come to us. And so the Gentiles said, if there is a class system, we're the top of the class. And everybody else is beneath us, and y'all should just be thankful to be here. 
And they said, God must love us more now than he does you. We'll get to that in Romans 10 and 11, probably in six years. But this is what they were saying. There's a, they were saying there is a class system and they thought that God loves some people more than others based on the distinctions that they thought were so important. And Paul tells them this beautiful news that would have been hard to hear, but it is glorious news. He says, listen, there is one God and one way of salvation. Oh, we need to remember that today, church. There is one God and one way of salvation. In other words, there is not a God of the Jews and a God of the Gentiles. There is not a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. There is not a God of America and a God of all other countries. There's not a God of white people and a God of black people. There's not a God of rich people and a God of poor people. There is one God and there is one way of salvation. He's saying, listen, Jews, you don't know how all the Jews are going to be saved, church? You don't know how all Jews are going to be saved? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. You don't know how all Gentiles are going to be saved? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. There are not two ways of salvation. There is one God and one way of salvation. And so the Gospel eliminates these distinctions that we think are so important. The Gospel knocks us down in humility before the cross. And it also erases these distinctions and it unites us in Christ Jesus together as one church. This is what Paul's saying here. He's saying there's no class system in the kingdom. There is no class system in the kingdom. Classes focus on distinctions, like I said things that we like to focus on, think are so important. This especially gets brought out in the college process uh, because what happens is once you get accepted to college, uh, you start applying for scholarships, right? And scholarships love distinctions. <laughs> and that could be a pretty demoralizing experience if you're an average Joe like me, right? Because scholarships are going to ask you certain questions like, uh, are you part of this race? No. Well, no scholarship for you then. <laughs> Are you this tall? No, I'm not that tall. No scholarship for you. Are you this short? Well, I'm not actually that short. Well, no scholarship for you then. Do you have red hair? Have you ever served in the military? Have you ever visited this part of the country and contracted this disease? No, no scholarship for you then. On and on it goes, reminding you that there are benefits for certain people, just not for you. If only you were special. They remind you that you're not. And so then you get to school and you're reminded all over again that all people are not equal. Especially if you go to a school with a great sports program like Clemson. You go to this school and you realize that athletes are special. They're treated differently. They get these modified schedules. They get their own workout facilities, their own dining areas. They get modified classes. They even have their own plane to take them back and forth to whatever city the game is in. And so even though you are there at that school, you're reminded that they are special and you are not. That even though you're all part of the same school, all are not equal. And thank the Lord that that is not how the kingdom of God is. That God does not rank us in His kingdom. That God doesn't say, here are all the special people that I love a lot, and here are the people who just barely made it in. He says, all people are one and equal in Christ Jesus. Praise God for that. The gospel does away with our distinctions 
Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We need to understand this, church. Paul is saying, listen, you think that God has given special treatment to some people and not to others based on certain things like male or female, free or slave and all that. And Paul is saying, none of that matters when it comes to salvation. God doesn't take any of those things into account when it comes to salvation. God cares about one thing, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. That's the one distinction that he actually cares about. And Paul wanted the Ephesian church to know this especially. And so in Ephesians 2, 13-16, this is what he said. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off, the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So the Gospel draws us in. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And church, I want you to know, this is the message that we need today. This is the message that Christians need today. Because we love our distinctions. And we all have them. We focus on them. We prioritize them. We rank them. We all have certain things about ourselves that we think make us better than others. You're not supposed to say that in church, by the way, but you know it's true. And we're honest here. We all have certain things about ourselves that we think make us better than others. Things that make us more important than others. Things that we think give us a higher class than others. Things that fuel our pride and divide our church. I'll give you a couple examples. I was part of a church one time where if you didn't live in a certain neighborhood and make a certain amount of money, you could not be part of the end circle. Those were the distinctions that church cared about. And they ranked them and they said, you can be part of this church, but you will never truly be part of this church because you don't live in this neighborhood and make this much money. I've seen Christians look down their noses on people of lower income and judge them. Look down their noses on people of different marital statuses. I've seen Christians look down their noses on people who don't dress how they want them to dress. Because they think, oh, you've got to dress this way. And if you don't, well, then you're just, you, I guess you don't love the Lord as much as I do. And they focus on those distinctions and they look down their noses and they judge others because of it. Those type of things cause division within the church. Makes people feel like they can't be part of your church if they don't dress a certain way and look a certain way. God forbid that a homeless person should come to our doors and feel like he's not welcome here because he can't dress in an Armani suit. There are Christians who think that just because they've been part of a church for a certain amount of time, and just because their family has been in the church for a certain amount of time, they think that their voices and their opinions should have more weight and value in the church. I've been part of this church since 1971. Praise God, brother. Glad you're still here. Listen to me. Your voice has just as much importance and weight as everybody else's. 
I've seen Christians think that just because they can trace their family's lineage back to the founding of the church, they think that they should be running the church. My great-great-grandpappy helped build this church. Praise God for His faithfulness. Let's imitate it in our lives now. You don't get more say in the church because you've been here for a longer period of time. If you're a new member here or if you've been here since the church was founded, you have the same amount of importance. Everybody here, congregational church, our voices have the same weight. No vote outranks another vote in this church. And so we should not prioritize these distinctions and rank these distinctions and say, if you've been here for a certain amount of time, you get this many votes and your voice has this much weight. And if you're just joining, well, then you don't get to vote at all. You have to be quiet. That's not how the, God, the church works. That's not how the kingdom of God works. I've seen politics and different political opinions absolutely divide churches and make unity completely impossible. And just a side note here, this isn't the sermon, but just a side note. If your political opinions get in the way of kingdom values, you need to be asking yourself, whose kingdom do you really value the most? Again, that's not the sermon. That's just a side note, but something to think about. If your political opinions get in the way of kingdom values, then ultimately whose kingdom do you serve and value the most? I think worst of all is this. I've seen Christians give lip service to diversity while at the same time only associating with people who look just like them. People of their own race, people of their own economic standing, People who dress like they dress, talk like they talk. People just like them. I've seen Christians give lip service to diversity all while being suspicious of anyone who doesn't look like them. Anyone who doesn't fit their idea of what a Christian should look like. I've seen them give lip service to diversity while harboring hatred and suspicion towards foreigners. You see, I want want you to make sure you, you hear me clearly on this, okay? Most American Christians are totally fine with diversity so long as it's in heaven and not in their own church. That's the sad truth of where we've come now as Christians in this country. Most American Christians are totally fine with diversity so long as it's in heaven and not in their own church. And I want you to hear me on this. These things have no place in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. These things have no place in the kingdom of God. It's because the gospel erases these distinctions. Hear me on this, church. God doesn't care if a person is poor or rich. God doesn't care if a person is wearing ripped up blue jeans or an Armani suit. God doesn't care if a person is black, white, Asian, Hispanic, or anything else. God doesn't care if you have a college degree or work a blue-collar job. God doesn't care if you drive a Pinto or a Porsche. God doesn't care about those things. The distinction He cares about is faith in Jesus. That is how the gospel unites us together. That's how it equalizes us. God isn't focusing on all these distinctions that we focus on. He's looking at us. He's looking at the heart and he's saying, does this person have faith in Jesus? That's what he cares about. One of the most glorious sights we're ever going to get to see is when we get to glory one day and we look out upon an innumerable multitude that has every distinction Every tribe, tongue, 
nation, language, race, economic status, educational background, all of these distinctions, and they are gathered around the throne of Jesus, worshiping Him for salvation in Him. Praise God, what a sight that's going to be to behold. And church, that heavenly reality is what we should be striving for here on earth. A diverse people, all united in Jesus. No classes, no hierarchy, no way in distinctions, just one body of believers united in one spirit by Jesus. You see, these are the same struggles we face today. This isn't an ancient problem. I hope you understand that, right? These are the same things that we deal with today, which means we need the gospel to once again humble us and unite us. We need to be knocked down so that we can be drawn in. And church, that is the equalizing effect of the gospel upon the church. The gospel brings us to our knees before Jesus and unites us together in Jesus. That is the equalizing effect the gospel has upon the church. The gospel brings us to our knees before Jesus and unites us together in Jesus. And this is what it all comes down to. Because when we look at this passage, we see a church that is struggling. We see a church that is facing a lot of new issues that they haven't had to face before. They're coming into a new season of ministry. We see a church in which they are changing because change is a necessity for them. A church that has different groups within it that are all differing about what changes are best for the church. About what changes they should act upon. We see groups that are prioritizing their own preferences. Groups that are harboring hatred and hostility towards those who disagree with them. Groups that are filled with pride and a sense of self-superiority. Groups that are insisting upon their own way. Ultimately, groups that have strayed away from Jesus and the gospel and have forgotten who they are in Christ. And it is threatening the church. It is dividing the church. And it could kill the church. Because, listen to me on this, a church is nothing if not a body of believers unified in the Spirit by Jesus. If we do not have that, we have nothing. If we are not that, then we are nothing. That is who the church is called to be. And I look at this passage and I see that we're a lot like this church in Rome today, aren't we? We need the Gospel to once again humble us and unite us. Now more than ever, we need to be asking ourselves the same questions that Paul wanted the church in Rome to ask themselves. Are you willing to hinder the work of God and the ministry of the church in order to get your way? Are you willing to hinder the work of God and the ministry of the church in order to get your way? Here's a good one. This will tell you a lot about your heart. If your preferences aren't met but God is blessing the church and her ministries, are you going to rejoice or complain? That'll tell you a lot about where you stand with Jesus. Think about that. If God is blessing your church and her ministries, but your preferences aren't met, are you going to rejoice or complain? Are you willing to lay down your pride for the sake of the church? If your resistance to change causes division and fighting within the church, are you willing to lay down your pride for the good of the church and the sake of the church? Are you willing to fight for the unity of the church as much as you are willing to fight for your own personal preferences within the church? Those are the questions that we need to be asking ourselves today. 
Because those are the questions Paul wanted the church in Rome to ask themselves. Church, you see, we desperately need the Gospel. We need it to knock us down and bring us to our knees in humility before Jesus. We need to remember that we are only saved because of Jesus. We're only part of the church because of Jesus. And so all glory is to Christ and Christ alone. All boasting is in Christ alone. Hear me on this. Jesus alone has preeminence in the church. Jesus alone is the head of the church. Jesus alone runs the church, not us. And we need the gospel to draw us in together once more. We need to be reminded this morning that everybody in here, if you're a believer, we are equal in Christ. We are one in Christ. There is no one more important than another. There is no class system. There is one God and one way of salvation. We need to remember that we are one church united in one spirit by the one Savior and we have one mission. To glorify God by making disciples of Jesus. That is our mission. That is who we are. May the gospel of God bring us to our knees in humility before Jesus and unite us together in Jesus today. Amen? Let's pray.